0: and parched poles and honey and butter and sheep and cheese of kind for David and for the people that were with him to eat for they said the people is hungry and thirsty in the wilderness Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word for his. This morning we're going to center our attention on those last three verses. Where it speaks of those who brought the various things to David and his people. To sustain them and to comfort them in the time in which they were being chased and sought by Absalom. I want us to think on these men particularly, and I'm going to entitle what we're thinking about this morning, The Three Friends of David. The Three Friends of David. But before we go any further, let's just ask the Lord to meet with us and to speak to our hearts. Lord in heaven, now we pray that as we hold the word of God before us and as we consider the things that we find there, that thou wouldst allow the spirit of God to take the word. And to use it as the sword. To use it as that which splits our hearts. Causes our minds to give heed. Lord may the word have power amongst us today. Lord vain is the words of men. But powerful are the words of God. We pray now that you will bless it then. Use it to the end that Christ is glorified. That his kingdom is built. And the people of God are edified to this end I pray that you'll help me as your servant bless for Jesus' sake we ask in his precious name amen we have here in second Samuel seventeen at the end of the chapter the account of these three men who had banded together to come to David. We don't know necessarily whether this was a concerted thing that they had talked to each other and determined that they were going to come at the same time, uh, each one bringing certain wares and certain provisions. But it does say that they came while David was found at the place called Mahanaim. Now, we have to ask the question to start with, why did these three friends of David come to him as we have just read? Well, let's just remember what was going on. Let's think for a moment about the incident at hand. You have in this chapter, and the chapters just immediately before, the account of Absalom, the son of David, returning from exile. He had been exiled because. He murdered his brother. Of course his brother was a heinous sinner as well. Who had abused Absalom's sister. Absalom in wrath then. Purposed in himself that he would take vengeance against Amnon. And at a certain point when they were. Together. At a banquet so to speak. Absalom. Tells those that are his. Servants to smite Amnon, and they do. Amnon dies, and Absalom flees the, uh, the city of Jerusalem and is in exile. But here, because of the efforts of Joab and some of the others that were in Israel, Absalom returns to Jerusalem and is now... Also accepted by the king after a period of time. It wasn't right away that David saw him. It was a couple of years before David even saw him. But he was eventually accepted. And then Absalom sets out on a bit of a mission. He has in his mind the idea, I think it would be better for everyone concerned, me particularly, if I were king. So he sets out to steal the throne from his father and he does that by first setting out to steal the hearts of the children of Israel. And he does so by being very charismatic before them, very um, bubbly, loving type of thing and always commenting, oh, if I were but the judge in this land, you all would have it easy. Things would be put right. Oh, things would not be as they are. You wouldn't have to worry about the burdens that my father imposes on you. How much better things would be if only I were the judge. Um, Remove the word judge. He was really meaning if I were the king. Because the judge in the land was the king. Absalom was an exceptionally handsome and charismatic man. I won't go into all of that. But there were few that could be compared to him. He was not only goodly to look to. He was somebody that by his personality. Just won you right over. Well. He was successful in starting to steal the hearts of the people of Israel. And there was with him a number that. Joined in conspiracy against David. To the point where David. Actually had to flee. From Jerusalem because it was declared that Absalom reigns in Hebron, which was a place where David first became king. And then Absalom starts his way toward Jerusalem. David and the people there have to flee or else be captured and killed. It says of David that he fled to the east. He fled to the Jordan River. And then he passed over the Jordan River into an area called Gilead. Now, Gilead is not just one little city or even one little province. Gilead is a region, the whole eastern region that is on the east side of the Jordan River is called Gilead. David passes over into Gilead and Absalom pursues. And we read this morning in our reading that Absalom also passed over into Gilead. David in the continuance of his flight, comes to a city called Mahanaim, which is in the northward part of Gilead, right close to a river that's called the Jabbok River, a river that flowed westward out of the land of Syria and eventually joined in with the Jordan River. Mahanaim is a place of particular note. And perhaps you think in your mind, you know, I think I've heard, before that name, before in other verses in the scripture, you would have. In Genesis chapter 32, it was this place where it says that Jacob met the angels of God before he began his march toward Canaan and the renewal of acquaintance with his brother Esau. In fact, it was Jacob that named this place The word Mahanaim really means two camps. We wonder why did that take that name? Well, perhaps it was because we don't know this, but it seems to be in line that perhaps the counsel of Jacob meeting with the angels, the Lord counseled him, divide your family into two camps. One with Rachel and her children, the other with Leah and her children and have them pass on that way before your brother Esau. So you have this referred to in the early parts of the scripture. In Joshua chapter 21, it identifies Mahanaim as one of the cities of refuge on the eastern side of the Jordan. And I say, given what we're talking about, this is not a point of insignificance. A city of refuge is where David finds himself. Also, Mahanaim was the base of operation for the forces of Israel led by Ishbosheth and Abner. You remember them? You remember reading about them when David was crowned king of Judah. Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, was crowned king of the other ten tribes, and then there was a war between. Israel and Judah and David's men waxed stronger and stronger, and Ishbosheth's armies waxed weaker and weaker. And it would have to be surmised then if this was the base of operation for Ishbosheth, then this place was somewhat fortified. Was it a city with walls? Eh, there's no way to tell. It does not exist anymore. But certainly it would have been a fortified camp. The area around this part of Gilead was heavily forested, and still is, by the way, and filled with hills, and it would make for excellent hiding. I'm sure that's one reason perhaps David made his way there. Well, we read this morning of Absalom and his army crossing the Jordan River and camping in Gilead, which would to him eventually prove disastrous, for in the battle that followed, it says in the Scripture that the woods of that area... Devoured more than was devoured by the sword. Absalom himself uh, would be snared by the trees and then find his demise at the hand of Joab. Let's just remember David and his army. And I'd say it was no small army because it says that he had the Carathites and the Pelathites and his mighty men and all their hosts and all their families. The, the, the group that was with David was no small group. In fact it was an army in itself with him again the mighty men but also I want to point out this that with David was his family including no small point here including the one that would continue the line from which the Lord Jesus came. So David was in this place but also David's Children, particularly Solomon, was in this place as well. The Lord had defended Jacob here in this place and dealt with him in mercy to preserve the line from which the Lord Jesus would come by preserving Jacob. He defends David as well and does the same. Now again, I say this was most likely a fortified camp. A camp that evidently had some walls, for David had a room over the gate, and later sat in the gate, and it was to this place that the three friends of David, of which we read, come to him. The point I want to make is this they brought abundance. They bring enough feed and comfort an army. We cannot imagine There's no way to imagine the immense offering that this is that was given of these men. It was enough to comfort and to well nourish David's army. You say, how do you know? Because David's army was in tremendous shape when they actually went to battle against Absalom. In fact, the battle, of course, was decided by the Lord. But certainly, the strength of David's army, though maybe smaller in number, was greater than Absalom's. But I want you to understand that the account that we have here falls short of the real setting of the picture of what we have here. And I want you to understand there are some very valuable points that can be observed that will teach us of our need also to give our all to our king as well. I'm going to present this subject to you. I hope the Lord will help us to see it in these words that we have here. It is never a loss to give all to Jesus. It is never a loss to give all to Jesus. I've got a few points I want to present this morning. Most of it is just a... For I want to consider first this... Who were these men? Who were these men? Well, I would say these men are wonderfully interesting. For they were not those who you would have thought to be the ones to own David in his moment of great trouble. They all had this in common. Number one, they were not men who were among the princes of Israel. They were not the great nobles of Israel. They were not born and reared under the shadow of the king's palace. These men were quite the opposite. They were not listed among the journal of David's mighty men or noted as warriors that went to battle for David ever. These were simply men that knew that they had been known of David and blessed by him. And I say it is interesting to note who these men were, for it would not seem as though they would be likely servants in a day of trouble. Who were these men? Well, let's take them one at a time. Shobai. Shobai. Shobai was the epitome of an outsider. And I say this again. Shobai was an outsider. He was not even a member of the nation of Israel. It says of him that he was an Ammonite. Now let's think about this. Like Ittai, who was a Philistine... Shobai was one who was of another nation who came to love David. He was outside the commonwealth of Israel. Or may we put it, maybe you can see where I'm going. He was outside of the commonwealth of grace. He was an outsider. He was one that had nothing to do with God in his origin, in his early days. He was entirely an outsider. Let's think a little bit more about, what do we know about Shobai? Well, first, it says that he was the son of Nahash. Nahash was the king of the Ammonites, whose capital was the city Rabbah. R-A-B-B-A-H. You read it here in our reading. And he was apparently the brother of Hanan. You say, huh? What's that mean? Perhaps you will remember At one point, we read that Nahash, the king of Rabbah of the Ammonites, dies. And David says, I will send my messengers to Rabbah to offer my condolences to the family of Nahash. And of course, as his messengers come, those who were the counselors to Hanan, the heir to the throne. So these men are not here to offer condolences. They're here to spy out the land. And of course, maybe you remember, the messengers of David were treated very dreadfully. They cut their garments to the point where they were walking shamefully. They shaved off half their beards. These men were so ashamed they had to wait at Jericho for a period of time before they would even be able to return to David. Well, you read then, shortly after that, David sends his armies under Joab and Abishai to take on these who were so um, terrible in their treatment of his messengers, and of course the Ammonites then they go out and hire the Syrians. The Syrians were mercenaries. And of course you had then Joab and Abishai having to fight two fronts. But the battle goes the way of David's men. The Syrians are routed. The Ammonites flee. And eventually Joab comes and lays siege then to the city of Rabbah. Do you know what happened at that time? David's great sin. And it was before the city of Rabbah, as Joab was taking this place, a place where Shobai perhaps was even living in. He was in that city, maybe, and at that time you find David's great sin and the murder of Uriah the Hittite before the walls of Rabbah. Well, the city succumbs to the, the, the siege eventually. And Joab sends word to David, you better come down here quick because if I take the city it's going to be called after my name. You come and take the city. So David comes down and the city is taken. And it would appear then that eventually after the city is taken that Shobai was installed by David as governor of Rabbah. Rabbah was also known in Scripture as the place that was, that was uh, where Og's bedstead was to be found. Do you remember that from the book of Exodus? Og, the opponent to the people of Israel, as they came out of the land of Egypt, he had a great iron bed. You wonder why something like that would be remembered. But had an iron bed. Well, that's where did he have his iron bed? He added a Rabbah. Now, you might think, and I want you to think about this with me, you might think it would seem that Shobai would have a natural resentment against David, and would love to see David overthrown for all the things that David did to his people, to his city, and the fact that they were in servitude to the kingdom of Israel. That's what you might think. This man was the epitome of an outsider. But it was not the case, was it? It was not the case. You say, why? I'm just going to say this to you. You know, it is possible for a work to be done in the heart of an outsider. To the realm of the king. That transforms everything for him. You can be an outsider to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. You can be one who said, you know what, I used to walk in a way that was diametrically opposed to the king, to the Lord Jesus. And maybe that means that the Lord won't accept him. No, sir. No. Even an outsider, one who is a rebel, one who is an idolater, can be owned by the king, can love the king. I want you to think a little bit further about the Ammonites to prove who this man was. The Ammonites were a grossly sinful and idolatrous people. It was their god, Molech, that Solomon came to worship. This was the god to which King Manasseh made his children go through the fire in sacrifice. A horribly vicious God, so to speak. Again, this man, Shobai, came from the worst of backgrounds. With the littlest knowledge of God that that can be imagined. Yet he was transformed by the meeting of King David. He met with King David. David came and conquered the place where he was. But in so conquering, transformed this man's heart. That he became a lover of David to the point where he would come to David in his need. Do you see what I'm trying to say? Sometimes men are so caught in sin that they feel like I can never, ever have anything to do with the Lord Jesus. But you know, sometimes the Lord comes and conquers us. He breaks down the barriers and he comes and shows us who he really is. And when we meet with Jesus, as we read in John chapter 1, when we meet with Jesus, everything changes. Everything changes. This man was transformed, and what he brought to Rabbi, uh, Rabbah, or from Rabbah, what he brought from Rabbah to Mahanaim was sufficient to supply an army. He gave just about everything. You think about what would it take? How much would you have to supply uh, of goods and beds? They brought beds. How many beds would you need? How many bowls and basins would you need? How much provision would you need to supply for an army? Boy, if you brought what was really needed, you might, well, you might bankrupt yourself. Well, Shobai didn't care. I'm bringing it all to the king. Then you have another man whose name was Machir. Machir was a man who came from the place called Debar. Now, do you remember when the children of Israel came into this land of Gilead before they actually entered into the land of Canaan, that there were two and a half tribes that say, we want to stay on the east side of the Jordan River because we find that it is a place of great pasture. We are very, very satisfied with this side of the river We'll help you when you go over to fight the Canaanites. We'll send our men, but we're going to stay and make our inheritance this land of Gilead, a place that was known for excellent pasture. But you know what Lodabar means? No pasture. Huh? Yes, Lodabar, in this place where everything is known to be filled with pasture land, here you have this area within that that says there's no pasture here. In other words, this is a place of very little resource. It's also possible that Machir might have been of the house of Saul. Or at least had some tie to it. Because it was to Machir that Mephibosheth was brought when he fled at the news of Jonathan's death. And Machir took guardianship of Mephibosheth as he grew up. No, we could think of a couple reasons that you might think that Mature would not want to support David. Number one, he, like Shimei, the man who cursed David as David went out from Jerusalem, might like to see the successor of, of Saul fall flat on his face. Also, he was not a part of Jerusalem. He was not a part of that court of David. He was not somebody who lived over on the west side of the Jordan. He was a separate one who didn't have anything to do with David or his people at that point. He was not involved in the life of the king's city. Now again, we can't make much of the name of the place where he lived, but we can make this observation. Though a man may be filled with reasons why he would not want to have anything to do with the king, and further may live in a place where there is little on which to be fed, Knowing the king changes everything. He lived in Lodabar. There was not a pasture. There was not much resources there. There was not a lot that you're going to find growing around the place that he could harvest and take to David. It was going to be something that all that he brought had to be brought into him first. It was for him of acquiring in order to bring Oh, but here's a point. This is what I want us to think about. What you have to offer Jesus will not be what the Lord looks at in the day when sin is reckoned with. What you may have done that is meritorious will not count. The matter is this. Did you come to the king? That's the important thing. Will you arise and go to the king? Now there's a question that we all can ask of ourselves. I may not be very much. I may not have very much. I may not have talents. I may not have great intellect. I may not have much of anything. Not any resources. I, I come from low bar. That does not matter. The question is, will you go to Jesus? Will you come to Jesus and embrace him as your king? Will you make him your Lord? Will you ask for him to take away your sins to wash your sin and save your soul? But here was a man who came from a place, that, the name of the place, no pasture. Don't have anything. Then you have the third man, whose name was Barzillai. The scripture says of Barzillai that he was a venerable and honorable man. In biblical terms, he was a very aged man. It says that he was 80 years old. Now, we all know that 80 is just where life begins. Um, but for biblical terms, he, it says that he was an aged man. I will mention that in a moment. It does say that he was a great man. He was wealthy. But here's the point. He was nearing his last You think about it. If a man is nearing his last, he's at his end, so to speak, of his days, you wouldn't blame him if he sought comfort in his last days. What he had around him, the things that he had in hand, you don't say, well, I, you know, he's making himself comfortable in these his last days. He also, you would have to say this. He might wish to protect his home and family from what appeared to be the certain end of David. An older man, he has his family, his children, his grandchildren, maybe at that point even his great-grandchildren. Would he not want to protect them from what he would see would be the certain retribution by Absalom if he supported David? Wouldn't he want to protect his family? And certainly, you'd have to say this, he was a man of limited strength and little use as an ally in battle. The point, which, by the way, let me just mention to you, Brazili means literally of iron. There was something in this man that was iron-like. And it wasn't necessarily his physical strength. But it was his heart. His love for the king. My point to you is this. The Lord is not looking for great strength. He's not looking for great natural usefulness. He is looking for a heart that loves him and wants to be with him. That's what our God looks for. Berzillai. Shows immense love for David. And even though he is weak. He with iron determination. Says I will come to the king. I will not be afraid of what will happen to my family. God is on the throne. This is David's anointed. God has anointed David as his own chosen one. I will trust the Lord with this. And I will give to the king that has blessed me. Now I want you to note just a couple of points here. Before we leave these men and go to my next thought. We must note that for each of these men. Association with David would mean certain death for themselves. And their people if Absalom should succeed in his fight. This was not an association without cost. But also I want you to see this. The immensity of what was needed to supply for David. How much David really needed meant that their giving to David was not just sacrificial but it would cost them to the point of hurt. If you are going to supply for an army three men and their households are going to supply for an army, it's going to cost you to the point of hurt. Jesus comments to this, doesn't he? Chapter 10, verse 29, And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but that he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands and with persecutions and in the world to come life eternal but many that are first shall be last and the last first we don't ever read ever in the scripture that recovered any of what they extended to David. Monetarily. They gave it up. They gave it up. For the sake of the king. They counted it. But loss to them. I don't care about this. This does not matter to me. These things. That I, the things that I have. The things that I have acquired. The Comforts that I would find in life. They don't matter to me. What matters is that I am able to know the smile of my king. That is all that matters. Three men, each one with a particular disqualification as to why he would be useful, each one with a way in which he was weak in a sense, each one in a, with a reason why it would seem he would be unlikely to be able to know the fellowship with David. But each one was. I want us to think then, quickly, point number two, why did they come? Why did they come? Well, the reason, quite frankly, that they came is not stated in the scripture, but it's not hard to see. They came because, first, They loved the king. They loved the king. What more needs to be said on this thought? They did what they did because they loved David. If a man loves Jesus. He will want to be where Jesus is. No matter what it costs. A man who loves the king will count all things lost for the wonder of knowing the king. Isn't that what Paul says? Chapter three. Yea, doubtless I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Oh, may we understand that their love for Christ and their support for David, their love for David, their support for David marked them indelibly. They were never going to be seen as anything else but a threat and a scourge to the enemies of the king, to, to Absalom, to Amasa, to any of these others that were coming after them. They were going to be counted as a threat. And if they were not killed outright, they certainly would be persecuted terribly. It didn't sway them they belong to David should we expect anything less well secondly I would say this true of ourselves but true of them our lives are too short to give any, to anything but the king our lives are too short to give ourselves or what we have to anything else but the king you know men will dedicate themselves to all sorts of things in this life. For all sorts of reasons. They do so through their work. Uh, they dedicate themselves to various things for the sake of power or acclaim or education or wealth etc. Men will give up their resources willingly. To obtain what their hearts are set on. What was our memory verse that we didn't remember to say this morning? Do you know what it is? Should we say it now? What is our memory Colossians 3, 1 and 2. What is it? If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on. There it is. Life is too short for us to set our affection on things in this world. Because they're all going to be passing away. And by the way, you are too. Your time here is but just paper. You're only here for a minute. Why are you giving yourself to all the things that are very shortly? But the relationship that you have with the king. That lasts forever. What you have with Jesus Christ. That which you are forging with Christ. Is forever. Well. Another reason. I believe these men believed with all their heart. That the king's cause will prevail. They believed that David's cause would prevail. Now. Call this faith. They had a confidence that God was on the side of the king. They had faith in the character of God. God will be faithful to those that he has chosen. He will not prove otherwise. He will not be seen otherwise. He'll never even for a second be thought otherwise. He is faithful to those that are his. David was his. God will be faithful faithfulness to, the faithfulness of God to his word to David would certainly prevail in spite of all the appearances. We too should set our minds in such a frame. Will the Lord be unfaithful in the things that he has said to us? Will the Lord Jesus know the victory in the building of his kingdom? Even though sometimes, when we look around us, does it seem like the Lord Jesus is winning the battle? When you watch the news, does it make make you think that the Lord Jesus... I mean, what do you see? What I see depresses me. Well, you need to have a heart more like Shobai, Machir, and Berzai. The Lord will be faithful to the Lord Jesus. He will not let his cause fail. You can mark it down. Even though you have the Absaloms of the world that are out there marching and marching and marching... They're not going to succeed. They are not going to succeed. We know how this will end up, don't we? These men, I believe, in their hearts, believed in the Lord God and that all things would play out as it has been promised to David. They trusted their lives, their families, their all to that. Well, my last thought is this. What was the outcome? Or we may put it this way. What was gained? By these men, these three friends of David, what was gained? Well, what you do not read is that these men were exalted to great heights of honor and power. No, you don't read that, do you? You don't see that these men were made the chief ruler over Gilead or something. You don't read any of that, do you? We also do not read that the cost that they expected was ever recovered. You don't read that either. What they gave up. There's no indication they ever got it back. We must not think that serving our king will only cost us. Don't let that go through your mind. What we lose in this world's goods for the sake of Christ is not important. Because what we gain from him is far more. These men... Gained the king. They gained the king. They gained the blessing. The presence. And the fellowship of David. And for them this is something that would never be lost. Never ever be lost. Through the life of David and through. The vast majority of the life of Solomon as well. This is true for us. What we give up is nothing if we gain the Lord Jesus. Paul says it this way in Philippians 3.10 Oh that I may know him and the power of his resurrection I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings picture that we have here sounds exactly the same thing I want to know Jesus Christ. Because if I know him. That makes me rich far more than anything that I would ever have in this world. Let me say this to you young person. If the Lord ever leads you to the place where you're going to. Want to serve him. What you give up in this life. And by the way there are many things that you can give up. Not just money not just opportunities to have a certain kind of vocation you can give up all kinds of things and one of the things that Paul was saying is one thing that he had to give up was the acceptance of a large part of the people that were around him he suffered persecutions for Christ he went through sufferings for Christ he went through vast misunderstandings and reproaches and lies against him for the sake of Christ. And he says, I count them but gain. I count them all. All the things that would make me big and comfortable and important in this life, I count that but loss. And Paul was all those things. Before he came to Christ, Paul was Big, if you want to put it that way, in the Pharisees' circle, in the, the Judy, uh, Judaizer circle. He was a big man. He was an important man. He had lots of power. As I count that all but loss, it's, it's just so much trash to me. Compared to knowing the Lord Jesus. Compared to what I have because I know the Lord Jesus. He gains the person. These men gain the king. They also gained, secondly, and I'm done with this, satisfaction. They could rest in peace knowing that they did not only do the right and good thing. They did the honored thing. They served in faithfulness. They were faithful. You can rest in your faithfulness. Not that you congratulate yourself. But it is a satisfying thing to be able to serve the Lord Jesus. You know, Barzillai's family was particularly blessed, not necessarily while he was alive. We don't have an indication of how much longer he lived after he was one who conveyed David back over the Jordan to go back to Jerusalem. He sent a young man in his household, Chimham, with David to know the benefits of what David wanted to bestow on him. He said, I'm, I'm an old man. Let me go back and die in my own city, in my own bed, amongst my own people. I can't hear anymore. I can't see anymore. I can't taste anymore. The things of life that would have been the pleasures of young people. I've had my time. Now I want to just go home and I want to die in my own bed and be buried with my own people. We don't know how much longer he lived after that. But it does say in the scriptures, not long afterwards, that David in his... To was so- made king. He said, You make sure. You make sure that you remember the family of Brazili. You've got some other people you need to remember too. But in contrast to what needs to happen to them, sure they- I want you to understand when you give to the king. You may not see it. You may not know it. You may not sense it. But you have the king who will be saying over you, child of God, you make sure. He says this to his servants. You make sure that this one is counted amongst the blessed. And you make sure that they have a future in Israel. It's never a vain thing to serve Jesus Christ. It's never a vain thing to give up for Jesus Christ. Each one of these men gained a tremendous honor. He gave, they gave, till it hurt, so to speak. But they gained what was far more. Giving up all for the Lord Jesus, I'm telling you very plainly this morning, Giving up all for the Lord Jesus will not make sense to the world and will appear to cost a great deal. The world is not going to commend you. The world is not going to give you a backslap. The world is not going to tell you, wow, you did the right thing. If you for Jesus Christ, your friend, quite the opposite. They're going to call you foolish. They're going to call you nearsighted. They're going to call you those who have no sense. They may even disdain you and say, well, you know what? (laughs) We don't want to have a lot to do with you. In fact, they may even persecute you. But the point of it is, I want us to keep this in mind. At the end of it all, it's the smile of Jesus. At the end of it all, for these three, was the smile of David. For us, it is the smile of Christ. Oh, may the Lord help us. May he help us to realize that this world is not what we need to work for. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Amen May the Lord help us to be hearers of his word this day For Jesus' sake Let's all pray Father in heaven now we would pray that you will bless What we've thought on this morning We pray that our hearts also would be those Like these three Who will be willing to count everything but loss For the sake of Christ Lord I pray that you will help Our hearts Bless us as we leave this place. Continue with us as we walk through thy day. We pray all in Jesus' name. Amen.